0: Ciao and benvenuti to Adventures in the Creative Industries. I am Eric Cravalia, your one-man band, and today you are in for a treat. My guest is Dr. Charlie Lees. He is a gastroenterologist working at the Western General. He runs two of the biggest studies in the world on IBD, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease. He is a mountain biker, he is a runner, he is a scientist, and he's a big geek. Today we'll focus on the reasons why he became a doctor, why he's so passionate, and also we'll talk about Western medicine and ways for everybody to improve their lives, not just IBD or Crohn's disease patients. I hope you'll enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed making it, and here we go. Right, hello Charlie. Hi Eric. Hi, this feels weird to say hi again after we've been talking for like an hour, but um, welcome to Creative Industries, no, that's not even the title, welcome to Adventures In the creative industries right this is a little bit of an off episode in a way because you don't work in the creative industries although a lot of what you do is very closely related to but you actually are
1: a doctor I am yes I I am a doctor I'm a gastroenterologist Um, I'm a doctor I'm a scientist Um, and a teacher I guess in, in, in much of what I do I'm at my happiest though, I think, when I have my creative juices flowing fast, if that's not. Um, so if I start there, and then we can work around. Yeah, I just want to give a little bit of
0: background for the, to the people listening. So you're a gas yeah. but you're also dad. I am. You have two kids of your own, yep. plus another Stepdad two. Stepdad two more. Two more, so four. Yeah. You are a runner, an ultra-trail runner. When was the last time you, you trained for an ultra-trail marathon?
1: So I did a lot of ultra-trail running about four or five years ago. Between yes. three and five years ago, I was regularly running um, big ultra-marathons. Yeah. Um, prior to that um, is a part of my life when I was quite significantly heavier than I am now, um, with fairly unhealthy habits, not least an unhealthy Marlboro Lights habit um, really? and a terrible diet. Yeah, I can't so.
0: even imagine that.
1: No, so me becoming an endurance athlete was a huge part for me, a, a huge, huge thing for me. Um, in the last two or three years, I've become much more of a mountain biker, um, but this That's year I'm of... rediscovering my love for, for ultra running. So um, you're going to be back at it? Back on it this year. Wow.
0: You also have to say you're a scientist. Indeed. But also, one of the things we talk the most when we're together is gadgets.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love gadgets. <laughs> well, you're I love a photog- gadget lover. I, I love photography.
0: Yes. We also need to say that your Instagram is very active. You take a lot of pictures of you running, of Noemi, your wife, yeah. running, and or on a mountain bike, yeah. or covered in mud. Because yes. it feels like, <laughs> it feels like a, a theme, that one. Yeah. Um, so, yes, actually your uh, creative juices are always flowing. That's what I found is you're always ready with your camera. And you, you're running, you're uh, using a Canon, was that 6D?
1: No, I use a 5D Mark IV. Mark IV, now. yes, yeah. yes. Um, Which is a great camera, I guess. Oh, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it, it is awesome. I, I use that, or oh, actually, increasingly on my um, Samsung Note 9. Oh, um, right. Thank you very much for light. joining us. Uh <laughs> Yeah, So photography has been very, very um, uh, important for me in the last few years. And, you know, over Christmas, taking a bit of time off work, what did I do? Long walks in the mountains and the hills, um, either by myself or with Naomi and the kids uh, and Rex, uh, our new oh, Collie, yes, but always with my camera um, and always out searching for that winter light that's going to just be special for photographs. It uh, drives Naomi nuts because we'll go out and she's like, why aren't you taking your camera out? And I'm like, well, the light's crap. <laughs> I love doing that and, and increasingly um, delving further and further into that um, with a project this year uh, to learn how to video edit. So. Right. Yes. You said you were going to teach me. Exactly. That's, <laughs> it. That's it. That's what I was getting
0: at. <laughs> I didn't know you used to be a lot unhealthier in terms of your diet.
1: Yeah, I um, I went from a very broad-ranging, active, um, interesting childhood where music was my love. Um, yes. I was a very accomplished trumpet player, if I say so myself, but basically stopped playing when I went to medical school. Um, and then from... If, if we skip the medical school years, because probably the the less said about them, the better. <laughs> no, no, no. Wait, um, wait a second. Wait a yeah.
0: Second. How did you get into playing the trumpet in the first place? How did I get into playing the trumpet?
1: Um, I started playing the trumpet when I was eight or nine. Started t- started having piano lessons when I was seven or eight. Hated the piano. Started playing the trumpet. I think I just liked the fact you, it was loud and I was a boy. Um, and... Uh, I think I was just lucky I had a good teacher and um, I I practiced pretty hard. And then I realized actually that it was an escape from the usual aspects of growing up as a child that I found otherwise probably quite hard. Um, It gave something that I could concentrate on and see the results week in, week out. Mm -hmm. As I practiced and I get better, and then the chance to do two really key things I think one was to perform, and the other was to uh, share something with other like minded people. How old were you? So I did this um, until I very, very regularly till I was 18, 19.
0: And you started when you were eight, nine, ten. So that is ten years. You mastered the trumpet.
1: Well, no, I absolutely didn't master the trumpet, but I had 10 years of a journey where aiming to get somewhere close to mastering the trumpet was my goal. And there was a point when I was 14, when I gave serious consideration to that as a career.
0: A professional trumpet.
1: Sure. A trumpeteer. Yes. Wow. Um, But... I think I I knew somehow that maybe I didn't quite have the innate talent to have the career as a trumpeter that would have truly satisfied me. And I also figured that medicine would be quite a hard hobby to have. And so I thought that was the right way around. But I did I did genuinely give that quite a bit of consideration when I was 14 or 15, at that point where, you know, my trajectory had gone to the point where, you know, actually you could perform and it sounded half decent and I really enjoyed it. Um, And I made music every day of, every day of my life for for 10 years, be it practicing, be it, I did a lot of singing and so there would be, you know, an orchestra, there would be a jazz band, a big band, um, there'd be a chamber group, there'd be a, a a big choral ensemble at times it'd be you know an operatic society and this is while you were doing men you were uh, no medicine. no no this, is before. Before so that, this was before before this this was, was, was okay. yeah this was um, from say the age of eleven to the age of eighteen wow. but uh, that's
0: a- it's amazing because um it's like it's something you you, you did hint at in the past that you 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 used to play a trumpet, but <clears throat> it's on my Twitter handle. Retired trumpeter. Retired trumpeter. Yes, exactly. Uh, you, you know, like I don't know how, how seriously people take that. You should have a picture of you playing the mm. trumpet on the, on your cover on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um. So what happened then? That you decided, that, you said a medical school felt like, you, you couldn't it couldn't be a hobby like you had to like you had to take it out seriously basically.
1: I th- no, probably so. I knew when I was 15, 16 that having made that choice that I wanted to go to medical school, that was then what I was going to do. So yeah. I still did lots of music at that point. Then I went to medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, and having lived a very full-on life for quite a few years before that where um, it was study work and music yeah. um, that really filled my life. It was very, very packed. I then went to, um, to, to medical school in the middle of London in 1994, mm-hmm. and that was then a period of maybe catching up on um, growing up a bit in, in many ways, and 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 enjoying life and enjoying being part of uh, a peer group who I you could find at medical school, you know, at UCL, uh, you know, big cosmopolitan um, mm-hmm. university, um, yeah. and so the music i kept going for a couple of years and th- and then died off a bit and then um yeah that was that was a period of enjoying life i think in in the middle of london going to a lot of music going to a lot of gigs um down Ronnie Scott's frequently um when it was still a pretty cool joint uh-huh. and then um and then that took me to when i started working in 2000
0: <laughs> wow Okay, so you went from a busy life of studying and playing music to medical school. That, in some ways, um, was be- it was a lot. It was busier, I guess, in many ways. Yeah,
1: it, it was a different. It was a different experience. So yes, sure, it's busy. Being at medical school is pretty busy. But mm-hmm. um, I was in the middle of London, and so I was. Uh, I read a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad always said to me, "Read a lot, read widely, and don't necessarily." read directly on the subject that you are studying or practicing. Build a really big base of knowledge yeah. that will so, that will stand you in very good stead. So I read a lot of science fiction. I read a lot of contemporary fiction. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, went to see a lot of art shows. Yeah. Um, went out a lot. Um, spent a lot of time um, deep in conversation with people. I, and, you know, it was a really... Um, in many ways, it was all what a good university period of time should be um, whilst going through medical school um, and knowing that I was looking forward to working, actually. Um, I wasn't particularly healthy in those days, mm-hmm. nor I was. And that then picked up. I was then desperate to start working in 2000. And I loved that. Absolutely loved being able to um to, to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, earn my own money, do my own thing, um, and, and to be able to properly dive into something. That, it, first, that first year after medical school, you do not have any exams. So that was great, because all you need to do is work. Um, a long, long shifts in the hospital, living on site, and that was great.
0: What was the hardest thing in medical school for you then?
1: I, I found it very difficult to relate to my peer group at school. My immediate peer group. So music was my escape because it, it brought me into contact with people with whom I had a shared passion. Wow. So that must have been a challenging. What six years?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's obvious for people that get to know you that you're not like any other doctor they've ever met. I don't think like you always. You, we we always been able to talk about everything and anything, and that's that's probably one of the best thing. And I like. We got to know each other, I think it was 2015, the first time we met. Yeah. Or maybe 20, late 2015, early 2016. And you, you were just starting to prepare for this big conference that you do. So you do lots of traveling. And I'm yep. sure we'll touch on that. And I remember straight away, you had a vision for what PREDICT, which is the study you um, had, is that what you say? Mm-hmm. And I remember like how we aligned. With our visions straight away it was like oh yeah you can do this and you said like, that's exactly what I want to do and it's amazing how a year later you were doing it exactly the way you wanted to do it and we still are in, in certain ways because we're still working together and we're still making content and we're still on it but I, th- I thought it the first time we met we I had one of the best first meeting I had with a client ever and the fact that now you're here sitting doing my podcast and we've been I would say friends ever since. Yeah. And it's, it's been um, an honor for me because you come from such a different background and, and I was always blown away by the amount of stuff you're familiar with. And you can tell that you have a lot of different interests that other, maybe other people don't have. And that's, that's what I find very interesting of you as a person. And like, I'm always been fascinated by the amount of work it takes a person To become a doctor and the amount of responsibility you have in your own hands. So, a question I always had is: What it meant to be, what it meant for you to be to become a doctor before medical school, and what it is for you to be a doctor now. Would did did these two visions align at some point, or is it completely different?
1: Yeah, I I think it. It probably is fairly well aligned, and you know there was a there was a a report in the newspapers just in the last week um, talking about the class ceiling, and and um, it, it was basically saying how likely were children were to get into a particular profession depending on what job their parents did, um, and medicine, no surprise, is by far and away. Um, the career in which it is most likely that children of doctors also go on to be doctors, um, and and there is an obvious criticism to that, which is it, it, there is a failing in um, allowing and promoting and encouraging children who aren't doc- who who don't have parents who are doctors to go on and do that. So I came from a very medical family. Um, my father now retired. Um, was a very successful uh, radiologist. Um, he was a professor of medical imaging at UCL and his work was his passion and his drive um, and his professional career. And I saw him as a child devote his life to, to that, to his passion. I saw him um, work phenomenally hard, not just at, the sort of standard parts of his job, but all the other bits that he wanted to do. I remember him being up till all hours, tinkering with his computer, doing the latest programs to generate the new software that was then gonna help generate the first generation of 3D uh, CT scanning, for example, to then uh, allow you to do CT colonography and all sorts of other um, uh, aspects. He he was uh, an interventional radiologist, so that meant he did procedures as well as just doing scans. Um, and so he would be coming in and out of his car, carrying some of the packets that he was just about to go off to this hospital or that hospital to do. He was always travelling and lecturing and teaching and inspiring. So that was a huge, huge influence on me. Um, and so that study, to me, in many parts, is about inspiration rather than anything else. And who better to inspire you than your parents? Um, And I think that's just something that that should be there for all of us to want to inspire our own children to to devote their lives to doing something with passion and energy, um, with a drive to be the best they can be at what they do. And to enjoy the journey, not just being there for the end result. And these are things I have learned along the way. Um, so my drive, my passion, my energy to be a doctor was heavily influenced by my father. Um, and in many ways, my life as a doctor now is not that dissimilar because I wanted to be, I wanted to be a gastroenterologist from a very early stage because I had um, inspirational teachers when I was um training as a student at the old Middlesex Hospital in London um and then further inspiring mentors later on I wanted to work in a big academic teaching hospital so that I could also run a research program so that I could teach and so that I could share my passion with others and that's pretty much where I have found myself um at a point now where I have a busy full-time clinical job. I have a, an expertise in one particular area. We can come on to that. But as you know, my, um, my expertise, uh, my, which is internationally recognized, is in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And we'll touch on that in a bit. <clears throat> I have developed um, a research program that aims to directly help the lives of those people um, who are unfortunate to have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And with both of those things I have developed uh, a passion and I think a skill which is um, mostly learned through hard work actually to, to teach and share that with others so that I can both share the, the, the learnings from the broad base of the literature um, and, as that develops but also from my own research program. Yeah. And that's where we then get into that whole conversation about um, communication and developing a true two-way knowledge exchange with um, clinical colleagues, scientific colleagues, patients, um, and other key st- stakeholders like industry partners, um, uh, uh, charities, patient organizations, etc. And so... When you and I first met, I think for me then, there had been a period of time when there was a lot of clinical work, there was a lot of the grunt work to set up the studies and the research programs. And then suddenly, here was an opportunity to unleash um, my creative juices again, not just um, for, for, for a hobby, which I'm passionate about, like photography, but here that was something that, that I could start, start to throw out my life's work, which was everything that I'd built towards to this point. I haven't realized at the time
0: um, how much of that was into the, the project. I mean, I knew the project was as yes, one of the biggest studies on IBD there's in the world. Yeah. And you run two of those studies, don't you? Because you run the GEM study as well. But I realized over time how attached, personally attached you were to, to, this, to this study and how hard... You, you work at this and it's insane. I, I get, I understand that the data you will gather from this study can really make a difference in people that are suffering every day with this disease. And that's the thing that really drew me in that your passion for yeah. that. And it's like, <clears throat> at the time, what we realized is that there is this I mean, I think the science community is now catching up to it very slowly. But there there was this p- p- communication issue. It's like the, 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 once you have that much data, it's hard to like make it digestible yeah. and put it out there so that people can not just understand it, but also relate to it. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges we faced. And at the time, I think we did crush it because we simplify it to, to the point where everybody could understand it. And I think that was a key element of this because like, it was good to see how people could get a
1: grasp
0: on something as complicated as predict on paper.
1: Yeah. And it's probably worth just retelling, for the benefit of your listeners, the story of where this came about for me.
0: Yes. So that, I, that was indeed one of the questions.
1: Like, how do you get to start such a big, big so, project? So I had spent. The best part of 10 years, working as a clinician, um, learning the expertise for the clinical care, but at the same time getting increasingly involved with big collaborative international projects looking at the genetic underpinnings of inflammatory bowel disease. And then about six or seven years ago, I went with the European organization I was involved with to China, Mm -hmm. to Guangzhou, to run a workshop, a masterclass in inflammatory bowel disease. And I went there, this was my first trip to the region, and my mind was blown open by what was happening everywhere. So Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are inflammatory conditions of the bowel that occur through a combination of environmental influences on the gut microbiome, the bugs in the gut, on a certain genetic background. They now nearly affect one in a 100 people in Scotland. But for a long time, they were unheard of in what we used to call the developing world. Um, but in the last 20 or 30 years, there has been this explosion of inflammatory bowel disease in the Far East, in um, uh, in the... Um, Indian subcontinent in South America, um, increasingly now in Africa. And that is happening as countries adopt uh, a westernized lifestyle, as countries urbanize, um, and probably more than anything, as people start eating um, the the worst parts of a western lifestyle with lots of processed foodstuffs, lots of animal protein, etc., etc., We were struggling with the genetic studies because it was only explaining a proportion of why people got the disease and it was telling us very little about what was happening to them after they got it. And that was the bit that I started to really care about. I wanted to do things that was going to really help the patients who were struggling that I was seeing in front of me in clinic. So I went to China and it blew my mind because suddenly I was hearing from the Chinese doctors about how their clinics had become overrun with these patients that hadn't been there at all 10 years ago. And then I was seeing all around me this yin and yang of old and new. The old, um, with the farmers coming up and selling their fruit and vegetables very simply on the street corner, outside a McDonald's that had opened up two months ago with a pizza hut on the other side, um, uh, with a a hotel buffet where I was with, you know, all the traditional Chinese food on one side and all the Western food on another side and all the young Chinese people eating, um, you know, spaghetti hoops um, and Weetabix and toast and chicken nuggets and things for breakfast, while all the delicious traditional food was was um, well, uh, w- was being left. So this was where the first ideas came for predict, and this is where I started to think about this journey that man has been on um, in terms of what. Foodstuffs, our guts are evolved to take. Um, how that affects the microbiome, the the, the bugs in the guts, um, and how a lot of modern illnesses, um, especially Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, have come about as we've entered this period of industrialization, food processing, mass production, um, huge reliance on animal protein that our planet's not set out to deliver. So, like, that's the thing that.
0: When we had this conversation, it kind of, in my head, something ran wrong. It's like, how come the diet that has such a huge influence in your field was not the obvious answer to begin with? Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's about
1: your guts. It, 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 To me, it seems very obvious now, and and, and people are now catching up to this. It, do you know, it's always seemed pretty obvious to the patients, They were, and, and they were there in the clinic saying, Doctor, you know, Charlie, what should I eat? How should I live? What should I do? And we've just been there saying, we don't know. Now, we don't know for two reasons. Um, It's hard to do big experiments looking at diet because it's difficult to collect the data um, and it's difficult to make sense of it. It's also hard um, to infer causality when looking at diet. Now, the problem here is that once someone has already got Crohn's, disease or ulcerative colitis no matter how many questions you ask them, you're always trying to track back because people's diet change over the time and it changes particularly if they've got, you know, stomach pains and diarrheal illnesses and things. Um, And so we're reliant on studies like GEM where you look at people's diet when they're well, and then you follow them over long periods of time to see what happens. We're reliant on studies like PREDICT when you take a large number of people who are well in remission, ask them about their diets, work out clever technological ways to do that, which is something that we've been working really hard on recently so that you can do it via a dedicated smartphone app, and then you follow people over time to the point of a flare-up or not. And so that's the kind of way we've been getting around it. So, to me, it is obvious now, but it's hard to study, um, and, and it's, um, it's going to take a bit more time before we can get these results. So, in medical school, right? Yeah. How many hours do you spend studying diets? Zero. Literally zero. I mean, that's fucked up, isn't it? It's wrong. And the medical students now don't learn much more, uh, and that needs to change. That absolutely needs to change it there, there is a huge crisis in the world at the moment with diet and and the rest uh, well, <laughs> sure sure but you know we are we are winning some of the public health battles right you know look how look how transformed Scotland is since the smoking ban despite many many people's skepticisms smoking ban and vaping and smoking rates are plummeting we see it I see it in my population that lots of people um who have Crohn's disease uh smoke um and we encourage them to stop smoking because they do better um if they stop smoking. Do you know what I realise? we haven't really explained what the predict study does. Okay.
0: Can you can you say like this, can I do this? the simplest Lem- way? I know you've done this so many times, yeah. but like in a sentence, what does the predict okay. study do?
1: So The PREDICT study aims to find out why people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis have flare-ups, and we are trying to look at a number of different facets. So I need to take a step further back and just explain how Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis affect people. So Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis affect almost 1 in 100 people in Scotland. It typically comes on um, to, and affects young people. So people in their teenage years, their 20s, and their 30s. People in their prime of life, busy, never been unwell before. And then a variety of symptoms that can come along. But typically, um, and unfortunately, it's not uncommon for people to present with. Lots of urgent diarrhea, so they're needing to go to the toilet to have a poo up to 10 times a day, um, including overnight, waking them from sleep, often with blood, often with a lot of urgency, you know, imagine imagine how disruptive life could be if you can't hold off one or two minutes because you need to go and have a poo. Uh, it's insane. Like when no, it's properly insane. You just don't stop and think about that. You can you, know? you can.
0: Like it was great when you invited me over to one of the events you guys did in Edinburgh, yeah. and I was hearing it from one of your donors. You know, very important guy, yeah. uh, high profile, and he was just telling his story and how. And that's when I realized really how important it is to find a solution yeah. or to at least improve patients' lives. Because when you're hearing his story, it was like. Oh, shit.
1: We don't talk about poo. We don't talk about our bowel habits. I, and, I, and I do this with the medical students when I teach them now. One of the first things I do is we say, um, "To tell me what urgency is. And they're like, oh, I say, come on. It's, oh, it's how long you can hold off to go to the toilet. But you, then I ask them, what's normal? They're like, huh? well, how long is it reasonable to hold off being able to go to the toilet to have yeah. a poo? Well, an hour is pretty good because an hour would allow you to finish your bus journey, get your stop, finish your lecture, wait, <laughs> yes. wait wait, if you're a student, wait till you break, if, if you're on a shift probably, yeah. um, and then go to the bathroom a, a, and have a poo. Uh, half an hour would probably allow you to stop, get off the bus, go and find a toilet, maybe park your car, get off a motorway, go to a service station, yeah. right? Yeah. Five, ten minutes, if you're in your workplace or if you're at home. <sighs> cutting it fine. But but if, but if your toilet's upstairs, you're downstairs, and you're older, and your mobility's not so good, you're probably cutting it fine. One or two minutes, and that's difficult. Um, One and, or two minutes—it it means that you're you're on a bus,
0: yeah—and like all of a sudden, you have to go to the bathroom. Like so, it's not—it's like if you're like been holding it for two hours, and it's yeah. like you're desperate to go to the bathroom. Two minutes, you are gonna shit yourself, and
1: it is utterly devastating for a young person to do, or that. anyone at all, um, to have accidents, and, and so we. we can I ask you for something yeah. like cuz you know my wife she's a teacher right
0: yeah. so I, um I hear some stories about yeah, sure. Some of the kids. sure 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 could that be possible
1: that a kid that's 6 7 years old is already affected by it? it it it's rare at that age but yes we definitely see it we see it from um from infants all the way up and there's no upper age limit but as i said it's typically teenagers 20s and 30s so okay. diarrhea is very common pains very common sickness and vomiting um Sweats, fevers, feeling dry, feeling run down, tiredness, that yeah. sort of tiredness that gets into your bones so that you just never feel refreshed. Um, and, and that's, that's, the one kind of, that's just a to, huge problem for people with, with these conditions. Just to clarify, that is the kind of tiredness you go to sleep, you wake up and you're still tired. Yes. Every day. Every day. You yeah. never recover. Yeah. Um, and low mood, very high rates of, unfortunately, of depression um, and anxiety. Um, so there's all sorts of um, really important assets here. Um, people lose weight, they can get mouth ulcers, they can get painful joints. And then we have, we have a series of uh, treatments to try and help get people better. In fact, increasingly, we have a lot of treatments. My next big project is going to be trying to work out what drug we should give to what patient um, the the first time to get them better. Um, quite often people need to have operations and all too commonly still patients need to have uh, operations that leave them with a stoma, which is where a bit of bowel is brought out to the skin and their poo comes out into a bag. There was a devastating story in the newspaper um, in the last week where um, a 10-year-old boy was bullied so bad about his stomach bag that he killed himself. And so that is just tragic. And that's why you having me on this podcast um is great because these are conversations that need to be had way beyond just my community. They need to be conversations that everyone has so that people realize that, you know, the, this is important for, for, for lots and lots of people and it affects lots of people's lives. Do you know what I realized, um, especially being very strong in the UK, there is
0: a sense of if you're ill, you're somehow broken, so you're not at your best, hmm. hence you're less. I just had that feeling that the mental health stigma is big, right? Yeah. And everybody knows about it, but like, what about the stigma on every
1: other disease? And a lot of people just don't talk about it. So we are getting much – the conversation about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is getting out there. work that the big charities are doing, Crohn's Colitis UK, but also the charities that, that fund Predict, like Cure Crohn's and Colitis out of Glasgow, they're doing a great work of just getting that message out there and through some of the organizations. So that the story is getting there, but we still have work to do. Mental health stigma is huge. Um This is um, something that we are trying. Uh, So I would really like to try and help break through the mental health stigma um, and doing it through um, the the work in my patient group feels like the right way to be doing that and contributing to that. We've got this very cool um, new system within the PREDICT study whereby this dedicated smartphone app, OSHI, that we're going to be using to collect all the data will collect. um, so, So in PREDICT, we collect lots and lots of different information, we collect information about how someone is, and we follow their their symptoms over time. But we also collect lots of lifestyle information, um, including um, depression and anxiety scores, um, resilience, um, how, how well people cope. Um, many of these things are things that we can then intervene with relatively easily. So if someone fills in a questionnaire on their smartphone, flags up as having a high anxiety score or a low resilience score, we can then either simply... Um uh, Link them to some information, or we can maybe even better then give them some smartphone based learning <laughs> we can 't get psychologists in the clinic we don 't have that resource um, so it wouldn't be
0: able they wouldn 't be able to get a therapist to help them out
1: not not that we have resource at the moment, and that 's a challenge to fix, but actually, many of these people might just um, be helped simply by um, it being picked up and recognized with some information, mm-hmm. and then perhaps an online tool that will help at least the first phase of that. And then, you know, if we if we can only get one day a week psychologist in the clinic, we can then identify those people that need that most. So that's breaking through the mental health stigma. That that, that feels like a really important thing that we can do. And with the communication channels that we're opening up, um, this is a way that we can do that and we can bring that conversation um, for for everyone. And so that's, so, here's, so here's part of my thinking at the moment. Mental health is a huge problem. Lots of people with IB, inflammatory bowel disease have higher rates of mental health problems than those that don't. So we can use this to have a broader conversation about that. Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are, are in part, we think, caused by lifestyle and dietary shifts and the impact they have on the microbiome that causes the gut to go into this unhealthy inflammatory state. Um, but for me it then becomes really interesting to start to think about diet and health in everyone. So when you say diet and health, here like
0: I'd like to clarify, we're not talking about like any specific diet. It's just about like eating less processed food and making your own food is is probably one of the key of this, right? And it's about having sort of a balanced diet, as much as you can. I think every every effort you can make is a good effort. That's the way I see
1: it. We're not saying that people need to be vegetarian or vegan or eat paleo or um, be gluten-free or this or that or whatever. Um, in fact, we're not saying anything too specifically yet, particularly when it relates to um, my disease area, because some of these answers remain unknown. However, I think there are a few things that are becoming increasingly clear. Cooking from fresh, natural produce is almost certainly the bedrock of good nutrition. Avoiding highly refined sugar, avoiding processed foodstuffs, avoiding food additives, and probably limiting the animal protein intake, quite substantially compared to what most people eat, and increasing plant-based fibres is going to be very, very beneficial. That, along with limiting alcohol intake and regular exercise, um, uh, would make a dramatic difference on the quality of life, I think, for many, many people in this country. Um, Sleep... Daily discipline, getting up early, um, having a passion to drive towards, yes. eating um, healthily—probably you know, fresh, mostly plant-based, but you know, without having to be too strict on other things—and um, and and, uh, and enjoying life. Yeah, that's that sounds like the recipe to a
0: good life, Charlie. That's that sounds like a hard work, but like you, you know, look, like
1: I. It sounds like it sounds like I've gone slightly off topic here no. But actually no, 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 genuinely no. We're not off topic. we we, We're are, na- we are now life. with with the work that we are doing we are now building um, this uh, and about to release this smartphone app o- Oshi that's designed for the predict study that collects all of this information so we collect from an individual um, how much they can how much they sleep uh, yeah. what what they're eating um, what their what other factors in their lifestyle while collecting information about their mood, um, doing anxiety and depression scores, looking for resilience scales. So we're collecting all of this information now, um, as well as then looking at stool samples of poo to, to look at the microbiome. We do genetic tests, um, and we look at inflammation levels. Like if, if we you, can apply this to, to everyone. Absolutely.
0: Like if you suffer of IBD, um, Crohn's disease, this is an opportunity for you, if you're not part of the study already, to get all this information. Yes. At the moment it's not accessible to you, but it really is about the moment that the new phone app uh, launches, then over time you will have access to all this information that normally you wouldn't get. So if you do suffer of any of this, get in touch with the predict study. Yeah. Um, I'll put a link into the the episode information so you can check it out. Predict two C's. Um, and you'll find all the information you need. I, I highly suggest people to just go to the... Uh, where is one of the places? A Western General, and is that another place yep. in Edinburgh as well?
1: Yeah, so the Royal Infirmary, but the Western General is the main point of contact in, yeah. in Edinburgh. Um, they might see you around in the Western General. But there are sites set up in, all across Scotland. Glasgow, Fourth Valley, Fife, um, Aberdeen, Dundee, Inverness, but also we have an increasing number of sites opening up over, over England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So... By the end of March, we will have 48 sites set up across the United Kingdom and I really hope that by the end of this year, we will be launching the study internationally. Um, we need some additional funds to do that, but there's a lot of interest to launch the study in North America, um, in, in, in the Gulf region, in South America, Spain um, and Japan. So I have, I have big hopes for trying to do this moving forwards. Um, because what we're doing, what we're developing, this—I think this creative solution that brings disruptive digital technology to, to um, addressing important um, clinical questions—is is so vitally important to the mission, which is to collect, to make it slightly technical, multi-parameter data from multiple sources that all um, we think contribute to making up that individual state at any particular one point in time and then following it longitudinally. So you can actually see how the differences at one point impo- impact those important outcomes for patients later on, like the need for an operation, like, um, like their quality of life, um, yeah, like the, their need for different treatments. We and should it.
0: also add that, as you were saying before, um, surgery is not the answer it doesn't it's something it, it doesn't fix you. No. Like surgery, if anything, it's just a scar that you're gonna carry with you going forward. I mean, it definitely improves people's life, but doesn't fix it. Yeah. And sometimes you might just find yourself back to where you are because yeah. you you could be flared at any time and it could be as bad as it used to be. So I think that's the other thing that people don't really certain people really understand. You know, a lot of people think that surgery is just the end means you know i'm just gonna get surgery and it's fine but actually in this case especially it's not this is something that i had to learn especially as well at the beginning of this um i had issues which i was like oh wow usually surgery fixes it and you're like no sorry not in this case so i think that's important to to remember this this long what this long-term study can do is provide the amount of information needed to help find a better way of life and like Clearly, you're not saying that you, IBD or Crohn's disease can be fixed, but you can improve people's life to an extent
1: where they can live a normal life. So we, so we are getting better with medicines at getting people back to a normal quality of life. Unfortunately, um, there are two problems. One is that we're not very good at working out which patient gets which drug first time. And so one of the things I say to people right at the get-go is, my aim is to get you completely well. Please be patient with me. Um, Unfortunately, I have this problem that I'm not 100% sure which drug to give you the first time. So the first drug I give you may not work. The second one may make you sick because of side effects. The third drug uh, may need some dose adjustment until we get there. So there's a journey, there's a conversation, there's a communication with the patient. If we bring them on board with that journey early on, that's truly, truly helpful. The thing that really vexes me is that I know that there are a proportion of people in whom the drugs just will not work. Surgery will work for some people for a short period of time, but the disease often comes back. Um, and for some people, surgery means a permanent stoma, which is something that we would definitely try to avoid. It's not a disaster, but it's something that we definitely try to avoid um, if possible. And and I think we believe, and I think patients believe, and I see it anecdotally from um, individual patients in clinic that, that give us clues, but don't tell us the whole answer, which is that environmental lifestyle and dietary factors are really, really important.
0: So those are the key elements.
1: Well, I, I, think, I think that for, for many patients moving forwards, if we can provide the sort of, this is what we think you should eat now based on the data, and if you do that, that's going to give you an extra 20% which for some people might be enough, so they don't need any medicines. For other people who, for whom the medicines get 50% well, that gets them to 70%. And if we can say exercise gives you another 10% um, yeah. and good sleep gives you another 10%. And if we can um, look at your mood um, and get yeah. your energy levels better, that gives you another 5%. Um, and we reduce your depression rates, that gives you another 5%. Sure. Then, and then suddenly you've got that 100% quality of life so that we can put all those things yeah. I- into a packet. Um, but we need that information to find that out. But you know, the thing that I think about more and more, Eric, is is how much of this would apply to everybody. Oh, you know, yeah. How many people do you know that wake up every morning and say, oh, "I'm dog tired, didn't sleep yeah. very well, don't know what I should be eating, um, I can't get to the gym regularly, I feel a bit sluggish." Do you know what? Like, I
0: think there's a huge problem with the culture of artwork work that we have today. I'm realizing this. Over my skin and what I do, and for however long I've been doing it, it's like there is too much attention is given on the amount of hours you work, the amount of money you make, and like it's amazing. Like when you take that and you apply to everything else in life, it just makes sense because then you're working yourself tired. Yeah, you're not eating well because you're eating in your computer. You don't go for a walk because you have to work for long hours, and guess what? You're gonna be sitting down all day, and that is as bad as anything else you can do in your life. And it's like, because we are sort of trapped into this mentality, we just tend not to look after ourselves as much as we should do. And like, you're an inspiration in this case because you you work. Your work is not just you work hard. The fact is your day is taken. Like whenever you wake up in the morning, your day is taken by however amount of hours in the hospital, however amount of hours doing research and then you have your speaking engagement, which we'll, we'll touch on right now and we'll touch very soon, and it's like your day is gone, so you're busy because, not because you have busy work but because you have to do this stuff, and yet you go, you you get on a mountain bike, you go to, I don't know Canada, Japan, Saudi Arabia, and you, you're you off going for a run before going for a walk, for a talk and it's like, it's you keep trying really, really hard to live a balanced, to healthy life, but like you, a person like you, which is a high achiever, you know, you have a great drive, a great passion for what you do. But, like, how many people don't? How many people fucking yeah. hate their job and they sit down 12 hours and they don't have any energy to go f- even for a walk, a lunchtime, you know?
1: So, Eric, I've, I've, I've how do you thought, fix that? I've <laughs> thought about a lot of this recently. Um, increasingly, probably because my eldest child is just about to turn 14. Um, oh, my, wow, my boy's 12, name his kids are. Um, a little older, and I say to them, find something that you're passionate about, and then give it your everything. Because if you really find something you're passionate about, then you can start to love the journey. And if you don't love the journey, and if you're just looking for some end product, or you hate the journey, then it all becomes so much harder. But what I've learned more in terms of what you were starting about then, is when I've been at my most productive and, and at my happiest and at my healthiest, it's when um, I've been doing most of these things to excess. I, actually, I, I don't like balance. Um, I, I don't like mediocrity and I don't like balance. I like to give everything to the things that I do. Mm. And when I'm not giving everything to the things that I do, that's when I start to feel unhappy. So when I started running, within a year or two, I was running 100-mile races. That's what made me feel good. When I was dialing on my diet, within a year, I went vegan for three months because that was where I was going with that. Yeah. Um, now there's just a bit too much of balance. So um, Because a year ago, work was getting very busy, so I decided to dial back a bit on um, some of the endurance events I was doing to concentrate more on work. But actually, that was a mistake. <laughs> because I when, when oh, I'm in a regular... Because when I'm in a regular training pattern, I sleep well, I eat really well, I drink virtually no alcohol, uh, I feel great, and that energy drives through the whole of the day and through the, everything that I'm doing. It's that, that sort of clean, burning, um, passionate energy that I can bring to what I do and to like, the communications, and, and, and that takes me through the travel and all those other aspects.
0: But that's momentum as well, though, because like you... you Yes, you daily start discipline one and momentum. And then the other, and then the other, and yep. then the other. And like I, I, I found out the same with me. The busier I am, the better I feel, but yep. the more I burn my energy. It's
1: mindset though, right? It's a mindset. It all thing, starts from sure. mindset, the daily discipline. I'll tell you something I started doing um, just this this year. Mm-hmm. which I highly recommend. Yeah, It sounds very naff. It sounds very American. But if you do it for a few days, it feels great. Here we go. First thing in the morning, I get up and I write a gratitude list. Oh, the five minutes journal. Yeah, there you go. It just like sometimes it's four or five points. Sometimes it's up to 10. Yeah. Um, And, and many of mine are totally daft, like good coffee beans and, you know. <laughs> no, uh, to be honest, like. I've done that myself as well
0: uh, especially three years ago I was not feeling that great and that was my morning routine I yeah. wake up and do that it's really powerful that's great and that together with headspace I would highly recommend is a 10 minutes yeah. um, meditation exercise yeah. that you I, can I, make yours very easily I,
1: yeah. I bought myself a year's subscription there to headspace months ago I I've, I've I've n- just have to use it now uh, come <laughs> on Charlie
0: just sn- snatch it into your routine somewhere like, yeah. while <laughs> as long as you focus on your breathing it's fine you don't need the headspace you can just go on YouTube like if you don't want to pay for a year subscription, for instance, right, for people listening, you can just go on YouTube and find some breathing exercises. They do help. Like, I don't know, it's, it's NAF, is very America's very new age, but actually it does, and it's just the way it is. Yeah. Same with the gratitude uh, journal. And journaling is is a big deal. Like, it's funny, because, you know, um, wanting to be a high achiever, you know, well, <laughs> in the last, cause I need to catch up. In the last 10 years, I've been catching up with the 20 before then. Um for twenty five before then, and I look into like, what are you know, people habits, you know the success, successful people, yeah, like. and I I hate I hate when it's success, is equals money. So I hate when you say, like, "Oh, this is this is what billionaires do in the morning." I see no correlation at all. Yeah, fuck you. Money is like, how do they make their money? Like, what what if they've been fucking taking advantage of millions of people and then that's how they made their money? Yeah. Like, I hate that system. Anyway, so the the high achievers, especially in the creative space as well, they they hold they hold do journal in the morning. They get up to do some meditation, some kind of meditation they do journaling, and they do uh, exercises or cold showers, something that happens very often. It's like, you know, there's a lot of people out there, there's a lot of resources that you can follow and see and find all this information. But what I'm getting at is all you need are small changes to get your momentum Mm -hmm. because momentum is a beautiful thing. I am so addicted to momentum. When I get momentum going, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing and you need to keep it up with yourself. Even if you have to cheat with yourself, mm-hmm. but you have to convince yourself to keep that momentum going, because I really firmly believe that momentum is all you need, because if you stop doing what you're doing, because one day you're sick, or one day <coughs> sorry, or one day you're not feeling well, or you're tired or whatever, you lose that streak and that's really hard to get back into, because then your, your mind tricks you into thinking, you know, ah, oh, you haven't done it, whatever Pfft, doesn't matter but I think here the ultimate trick is when it happens, right? Be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like you missed a day, it doesn't matter. Tomorrow be better. It's all about get back at it.
1: Yeah, and a very very helpful trick there is just whatever you do, whatever's gone before, make the next decision the best possible one you can. And if you do that very simple trick, um, it means that you don't look back.
0: Absolutely, like for me to get myself back into exercising, right, it's a long and grueling system where I have to start making small little b- good decisions throughout my day. Yeah. And then eventually two months later, I get up in the morning, I say, like, oh, you know, I'm gonna go for a little run. And then I start running, and the more I run, the more I wanna run, and then I, I screw my knees again. I need to stop for like three weeks, and then I have to go back light running. But the thing is, that now I have to stop because I injured myself but I am doing all the exercises at home. Yeah. You know, just do some push-ups. Do anything else. You can do so much at home. So, but like, then again, it's not about the push-ups. Push-ups don't matter. What matters is you've done one good thing. It's like, it's the, thing, like the first thing I do every morning is I wake up and I do my bed. Because it's like, you know, worse comes to worse, the day will be shit, but my bed is fucking done, mate. At least that, you know, I can go to yeah, bed and a good I trick. feel like, at least this is done. And I had shitty days when I came back home and here's the bed beautifully yeah. done
1: so so for me um i am mean, i would absolutely agree with all of those things but i think i think for me when life is at its most fulfilling um i have my 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 professional career is is ticking along with with you know several big projects on the go at once um, where I really get a sense of momentum that we're driving things forward. So that's the stage at the moment. You know, with the PREDICT study, we've recruited 1,250 patients. We're about to unleash with Oshie. Um, there's a great platform to go and present the work, and that's also allowing me to uh, raise awareness of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, as well as the Edinburgh IBD unit um, and, and and helping to put Scotland on the map as a as a real academic scientific medical force um in this position that helps to uh, uh, attract um um talent into us to help with the work that we're doing um it's it's supervising and mentoring um a group of fellows um like like i have at the moment who are producing some brilliant work that's um helping us understand from our local population more and more what's going on in terms of treatment response and outcome and and, and defining the population. Um, but it's, for me, the bit that that, that then really gets me fired up and, and, and drives me is when we, is when you, for example, it's when you and I are working together on um, new creative ways to take the message, distill it, Communicate it, build that two-way knowledge exchange, um, and then I can go and take that energy and those that, that, those ideas um, um, with my passion, and then be abroad lecturing, or be doing it at home, or be putting um, content out via um, via Twitter or Instagram or, or YouTube. I'm coughing to death. I'm just trying to get all the him.
0: <laughs> <in. laughs> no, but it's true. Like that's a, that you are one of the most active doctors out there. I think. And you you've been just taking in what, what's out there, why why things are successful, and
1: why why like certain things are important
0: for the message to work.
1: So I've been I've been looking and learning from um, the 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 huge amount of uh, of content that there is there that that teaches entrepreneurs how to get their message across, and I think that a huge amount of that applies to um, to, to medicine science and. Um, particularly clinical research where what you're doing is you're needing to um, you're needing to get attention in a space where um, there's a lot of noise and you're wanting to tell people what you're doing is important so that they can take part uh, uh, rather than rather than not or put their efforts and energy somewhere else Um, and In an era of fake news, this is a huge problem in medicine and science because the internet is full of a whole lot of rubbish content. There is a huge amount of um, noise out there peddled by um, charlatans um, who who don't have the qualifications, um, or worse, do have some qualifications, but actually are using it to promote, for whatever reason, junk science, um, junk diets, um, pr- asking people to spend vast amounts of money on supplements for which there's no evidence base, etc., etc., etc. So how
0: how much does it piss you off when you see this stuff out there? When you see, like, you know, those one-liners on a research project, yeah. when you see, you know, the
1: big, oh, they found this new medicine that can do this. Or- do you know what, Eric? It doesn't piss me off. It makes me sad, but it doesn't piss me off. Um, But it does make me determined to be a sensible voice out there that can, um, even if what I'm not doing is systematically debunking claims, at least I'm there providing um, what I think is quality, um, evidence-based content that allows people to understand what's you know where to go to for for help and for advice, and that's one of the things that we're working on a lot. You know, with Oshi, we're developing a lot of customized content that people can then access through the app, so that they will then know that that content is verified and checked. Um, these are the kinds of things that I think are very very helpful for people, um, but it's it's complicated. I, 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 and you know, my in my disease area, that that's one specific thing, but across the board, you know, you look at all the information that's out there. Um, a, a, about diet and health and lifestyle and what we should and what we shouldn't do. It's no wonder that people are so confused. And trying to deliver a simple message, I think, is important.
0: Do you know what you were talking? You were talking about China before, and when you went to, was it Shenzhou?
1: So, so that first trip was to Guangzhou. Guangzhou. Subsequently, went to Shanghai and Xi'an, um, <coughs> and Hong Kong. So you've been to China quite a lot. Yeah.
0: There is a divide between Western and Eastern medicine. Yeah. There's a huge difference. My question is, how do you relate Western and Eastern medicine? Do you think they are related? Do you think that the Eastern medicine is not after scratch?
1: Uh, yeah, so so that difficult to answer. I think Eastern medicine um, largely would now be fitted in within the, the sort of umbrella term of complementary medicine, which I think... Uh, can be beneficial for some people and for the most part isn't harmful um, and so when patients talk to me about this um be it c b d oil which is a very uh common um, request these days uh, or or be it acupuncture or some other supplements or other remedies um My advice to most patients is please don't do it instead of what we're trying because I want to put my faith in medicines and solutions that have been tried and tested using the scientific method um, which in medicine typically involves randomised controlled studies. This is this is the way in which we have transformed the lives of people with all kinds of problems. So it's the ways in which we've we, we've transformed society by the diligent application of scientific method, rigorously testing and retesting so that we can work out whether or not to accept or reject a hypothesis and therefore um, whether or not to adopt or to move on and to test and retest, um, iterating, um, Generating new ideas, and and uh, you know, we haven't really talked much about science in the context of of what we've talked about so far. But um, you know, I took a break from my uh, medical training in so so 2001 was where we got to. I moved up to Edinburgh. Uh, I moved up to Edinburgh um, for a two year medical rotation. That um, that's a medical rotation. So this was um, in those days. I was called a senior house officer. Mm-hmm. So I was only two years out of medical school. Um, But this was me knowing that I wanted to do medicine rather than surgery or psychiatry or be a GP or be a paediatrician, for example. So I came up to Edinburgh for a two-year, very prestigious rotation, which is why I came up to do it. Um, And then I stayed and I've been here ever since. But shortly after I did that, I then had to do a series of postgraduate exams. And then I undertook a period of research um, uh, to a PhD, which was... Um, in the genetics of inflammatory bowel disease so during that time I learned a lot about um, the importance of uh, of, the, of, of rigorously ap- applying you know scientific method to problems to test and retest until um, you were happy that you had suitable evidence to support your conclusions or not um, and it, that's, that's the basis of, of all of modern medicine. A lot of eastern medicine to go back to your question hasn't really done that um and so i find it hard to put my faith in that entirely but i know that some people will derive benefit from that have
0: you ever gained any benefit from doing a trying eastern medicine personally
1: yes no but i'm not really tr- I've, I've had i mean apart from having uh, dry needling into sports injuries which is which which i think is is slightly different because that's very um, a more tried and tested technique is no. it
0: so you say acupuncture is a little bit more trained and tested
1: i think so I mean, I, there are different aspects of that um but i you know I've, I've had dry needling specifically into um muscles that needed releasing and it works it worked for me
0: well you know yeah that's already good right Yeah. I mean, I believe in our system. But also it's scary because there are there are scientists out there that like fake the numbers. I mean that's that's no news, you know. That's that's happened in the past. There are studies that have been impossible to replicate. Yeah. You know, like that this is the people that poopoed all over all over the system. And then it's hard to so point those yeah, lines Eric
1: not. in every walk of life <laughs> there, <you go. laughs> there are there are bad eggs. Oh right? for sure, for sure. I know I'm not absolutely like I believe- every walk of life there are charlatans, every walk of life there are cheats. Yeah. Um and medicine and science are obviously not um, impervious to those individuals. Yeah. The, vast, the vast, vast majority still. of people that I know, th- this is why I get down on people berating the NHS, because for the vast ah. majority, people are working hard and the best they possibly can yeah. um, for patients' benefit. Everyone has bad days. Of the vast majority of people their hearts in the right place and they're working really hard to try and um do what's right for other people how you really feel for
0: gps these days they have so many patients yeah, they tough. have to deal with like being a gp you're in an hour 10 minutes you could have anything going for you you know i've been to the gp a few times you know you have pain or whatever and it's like sometimes i feel like just giving up because i understand how hard it is for them and also <clears throat> i'm it feels as sometimes they're trying to keep the numbers yeah.
1: down. So, so here's an interesting thing, just to, to, to give a personal perspective, which is yeah. that um, I, I don't think I ever really wanted to be a GP because I, I think it would be a really, I always thought it'd be a really, really hard job to do um, wh- where you need to know lots and lots and lots of things. So. So you need to know just enough about lots and lots of things. So you need to be able to spot in a busy morning, where you see 20 patients, the, the child that's severely sick that needs to go straight to hospital versus the warning sign in an older person that they might have cancer versus the person who's a bit depressed to the person actually who, who's sat in front of you that's trying to tell you they're suicidal yeah. and you need to do something about it there and then. To me, the... Uh, the, the real joy has come from becoming a true expert in one area. And even that area is huge. Um but you know really dialing in on Crohn's disease, narcissist critis, and of expertise has brought me so much fulfillment being able to to do that. Um and and I think what that has allowed is me to feel um a real satisfaction on the path to I guess the path to mastering the the management and 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 being able to do it in a relatively finite space um, and that's come through um, so I, so I hit I hit one more pivotal crossroads in my career which was in two thousand and nine um, in two thousand and nine I finished my specialty training. I'd done my PhD. was qualified as a gastroenterologist um, and I was under quite a lot of pressure to become a, a full-time academic. So I would have done four days a week in the in the laboratory and just one day a week in, in clinic and in, and, and in endoscopy, which is the other huge part of my job. Um, and for a variety of different reasons over a period of six months or so I then decided not to do that but to take the path of becoming a full-time hospital consultant gastroenterologist when a job opened up at the Western General because that had always been what I wanted to do I wanted to work in a big teaching hospital with a specialist interest uh, and a research program running alongside 10 years down the line from that now Mm -hmm. That has afforded me huge benefits because it has allowed me to build this expertise by seeing lots of people with inflammatory bowel disease Mm -hmm. and following them over a long period of time. So that's allowed me to learn the consequences of decisions I've made and the consequences of decisions we haven't made. So sometimes the decision to treat versus decision to not treat. Um, can be a very subtle one, um, and both can have important consequences that you can see drawn out over time. You can have the risks of a therapy versus the risks of not treating at all because the risks of the disease moving and progressing, and learning the rhythms um, uh, of, of how someone's Crohn's disease flares and doesn't flare and goes into remission over time and how patients go through cycles of surgery and what happens to them after that, yeah. and learning from them and speaking to them and hearing about how their lives have been... It's, it's, it's a hugely rewarding area of the job, being able to sit in that really privileged position opposite patients who you get to know um, week in or at least month in, month out over periods of really good health, over a personal crisis, through periods of very um, severe ill health, um, mm. and, and and for the most part, trying to help them get better. So that's been hugely rewarding, and I would not have changed that. For the world. Mm. It does mean that now sometimes I feel like I'm doing three full time jobs at once. Well, you are. (laughs) um, And now feels like the right time to divert much more time and energy. Into really delivering this research program of work, I want to take where we're at now with Predict, with 1,200 people in, and deliver the full 3,000 patients into the study by the end of this year. I want to see us deploy Oshi to develop to 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 use this state-of-the-art smartphone app to collect data. I want to show people um, the world over through all aspects of medicine and clinical science, how to add value through clinical research to clinicians, to patients um, and, and to associated partners. Uh, And then I have several other big studies I want to set up to do Mm -hmm. that. There is a lot of incredible energy within my field at the moment, with inflammatory bowel disease. There's a lot of interest around the world because the disease is getting so common Mm -hmm. um, as more and more people are developing it. So, For me, the the joy of being able to travel and travel where I feel there is a need for me to go and teach Mm -hmm. and a a want for people to come and hear the message I have and to know that that's something that I'm good at doing. Um, So I can then go out and I can teach physicians yeah. elsewhere in the world how to improve outcomes for their patients. They can then go and spread the message on and that can impact <clears throat> tens of thousands of people to improve standards um, and improve the outcomes.
0: Yeah, because like your position allowed you to master a topic yes. of medicine. Yes,
1: and it was mastery of one topic, but then being able to pull in. Do you remember I said before yeah. that broad base from just, um, you know, lounging around reading books maybe, Yeah. But but with your eyes wide open and having really broad conversations with people. So from that really broad base, you can bring in sure, those yeah. ideas, those left field ideas, um, and I still try to do that. I still try to keep as broader an understanding in a, 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 a certainly of the scientific literature. And then now to be able to pull in um, things like my passion for photography yes. into the creative things that we're doing um, and, 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 and deploying the, the social media avenues is, is, is really cool too. Absolutely, I mean you're you're making the best out of
0: it, and it's also to say that you're training the world on what you do because you travel a lot. Like you, how many how many places have you been last year? Yeah, twenty eighteen. How many places? Fifty, sixty. I
1: I traveled a lot last year. I, I circumnavigated the globe twice in the second half of last year. It was slightly it was slightly bonkers. Um, I I genuinely try and do it where where I feel like there is a really Good need and where I have a clear message and when I don't um, feel that I, I won't travel. I feel like I'm young enough still, just and have enough energy to do it and to do it well, whilst still delivering on the rest of my professional commitments. It's a fine, it's a fine balance. But but I but I you know I do it because I believe in it. I do it because it energizes me, um, and and because I love it. How much of an effect? as an achiever like you, to travel so much? It varies, you know. I went to Tokyo a couple of weeks ago. Incredible experience. I was there for two and a half days. Uh, I gave eight lectures. Um, I met 150 Japanese gastroenterologists, detailed conversations with many of them, lots of one-on-one meetings in addition to everything. Totally packed agenda, just how I love it, barely enough time to breathe. Because when I'm away from the hospital, the clinic, and my family, um, I want to be. Um, I want to be as productive as I possibly can, and usually I thrive off that. I come back full of energy, and it's great. This time I went out with the start of a sore throat. I got pretty sick. I had to go really deep to deliver the professional commitment out there. My voice got really tired, and you know, resting up wasn't an option. I had a professional commitment to deliver, and I wanted to do it as well as I possibly could, and I did that. Yeah, and. I, I was. I felt pretty run down when I got back. It took a big toll. Um, usually, that's not the case. And actually, you know, I know I know what it was, right? It was the second week of January and a slightly overindulgent Christmas, New Year. Wait, I've wait, not been running as regularly as normal.
0: Let's uh, define overindulgent Christmas. How many days <laughs> off have you had? Like, what, 10 days off? 10 days off? No, no, I had... I had about five or six days off. That's, yeah. that's indulging for you. How
1: many, how many holidays have you had last year? You're going to ask me how many mince pies I had. <laughs> how many holidays did I have last year? Um, I, use, I use a lot of my annual leave allowance mm-hmm. uh, to, to travel and teach. So we always aim to have two weeks with the kids in the summer and a week at Easter. So And five days at Christmas. Five days at Christmas. That's, so that's not too bad. No, it's all right.
0: It's all right. Uh, yeah, that's a holiday so- now would be good. Yeah. <laughs> so trying yeah. to combine it sometimes. Well, look, Every Easter is
1: closed, right? Hmm? Easter, Easter is closed. Easter is closed. Yes, and I've got a week off with my kids at Easter. That's it. Um And I've got a trip to I've got a trip to the Middle East coming up where um Naomi's going to come with me because she's identified some. Mountain bike trails um, in the desert in UAE, which she's desperate to go and Yeah, because she trail, is so. a professional mountain biker, isn't she? She's also uh, an IT um, consultant. <laughs> yeah, she's, a, she's, and <laughs> she's an IT a, consultant slash um, mountain biker. Yeah. No, Naomi is awesome. She is a she is the current European and UK 24-hour mountain biking champion, um, and I'm her support. So we do this incredible thing that so this has been just fascinating for me over the past uh four or five years which is learning how far we can push our bodies and how much further we can push them than we think we can um david goggin's reckons that most of us operate at about 40% if you don't know who david goggin's is um listen to him on the Rich World podcast or um or, or read his book, Can't Hurt Me. Anyway, he reckons that most of us operate at about 40% because 40% is that point where if you're running, it starts to hurt and most mm-hmm. of us stop. Um, and the, what we can achieve if we push that from 40 to 100%. So I've tapped into a little bit of this myself when I've done ultra running. Um, it's another level when I provide the support for Nomi in 24 hour mountain bike racing, where I push, watch her push everything absolutely to the limit. Um, non-stop racing um, around a track for 24 hours, um, and so there's the there's the hugely um, fascinating mind game. There's this um, journey of exploration and discovery physically about when you fix your mind, just seeing just how far your body can go. And then actually, there's a really interesting professional thing, which is how do you provide optimal nutrition and fuel. Um, when you are training, which is something I've explored in a lot of detail, which is a whole different conversation, but utterly fascinating. Um, so that's all about good fuel you're training. And then how do you provide the the sugar that you need to fuel yourself to go when you're spend, expending between eight and 14,000 calories in a 24-hour time period? How do you physically get it into your body, keep it in without you know, with it staying down, with being implant. Yeah. So we've done all that. So, so that's been really fascinating. So when, we're, when, when I'm not working, um, and when I'm not out with my camera or mm-hmm. with the kids, um, or with a dog or now increasingly both, um, what Naomi and I love nothing more than we're lucky enough to have a new VW camper van, pack the, pack the um the bikes on the back of the van put in the running shoes put the dog in the van and head off into the hills um and go and um ride and run on the trails and eat simple and sleep wild and just disconnect and that to my mind is just sheer bliss which is madness
0: but that's for all the time (laughs) (laughs) i love how sometimes um I seen you after a few days, and you're like, I said. So, what have you done on the weekend? I was like, oh, I just, I went for a, for a run, at thirty miles. And I was like, all right, <laughs> fine. I, I, I just, I'm reading Dune. <laughs> That's what I'm doing <laughs> at the weekend. Um, I played some video games. That's uh, about it. I went for a walk though. <laughs> so, like, it's I guess the drive and the will to train, and it's it's just. The thing is, it's good for everybody. I can see like <clears throat> my in-laws, my close father, he is um, late 70s. He goes running, he skips, he, he's constantly exercising. He does more exercise than I do by a lot. And it's like he's as healthy as you he can get and he's almost in his 80s. It's insane. Wow. And like uh, whenever I speak yeah. to to my wife, he's like, "We should be doing what your f- what your father is doing because we want to leave as much as he does, and want to get to that age and feel that good about That's yourself." That's awesome. That's incredible. And
1: um, but, but you can. You, yeah, I mean, you could do it. You do a lot of those things already, Eric. I you try. Can, you can, it's all about desire and passion and will and and knowing what to do. Um, and now it's relatively easy to know what to do because if you can, if you can. Find your way through the fog of information out there. Yeah, you can learn how to do pretty much anything you want by hitting up the right YouTube va- channels or, um, or, or some other web resource that that for the most part are free. Yeah, if you want to run, most of the gear is basically free, and then it's about daily discipline and mindset, Absolutely. and you know. You could, if you wanted to, I could guarantee Eric, if you wanted to within a year to to run a 50-mile ultra-trail marathon, you could.
0: Oh, yes. Like, it's incredible. How within a year. Maybe less. All it, it is less, it, all it is training. Training and diet. It's insane. But like, also, you don't have to be exercising for an hour a day. You really don't. You can do, you know… Um, high intensity training you can do 10 minutes a day Like I last time I was my fittest that's what I did I just did 10 minutes every day and I just watched my diet I didn't eat as many chocolate or as many carbs yeah. I did eat it though it's not like I, I was a monk but it's insane how much your body
1: changes to me there's you know I have run less in the last 6 months than I have in, in the recent 5 or 6 years and as I've come back to it in the last weeks I have relished and really appreciated how good it is for me just to feel that movement, the mm. movement in my body that then helps free my mind, that then helps me process and deprocess the, the life and yes. work and everything. Um, and do you know the benefits for all of our mental health – through finding some kind of regular form of movement and i th- and I believe that probably is important, or somewhere you can sort of tap into a flow state that allows the brain just to just to go into a different state to switch off to get the endorphins flowing naturally yeah. and healthily to me it's priceless
0: ah, damn, I really feel like I need to get out and exercise right now, Charlie Let's do it. <laughs> before we go because it's um, we're almost about to get kicked out um, you said you read a lot of science fiction yeah what's your
1: favourite book oh so I read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke a lot of Peter F. Hamilton uh-huh. Um What's my favourite book man what's Ian that M. Book Banks re- the original Banks books Consider Flabus maybe that's still my all time favourite
0: the one book that you read and you're like damn this was good yeah I I use Audible now. Audible's oh. great. I use. I, I, I just can't see you sitting down with a book these days. When, I where would you?
1: <laughs> but but Audible, you know. I, yeah. And, and um, a book a week almost when I'm out, um, running it's, often nonfiction. So favorite book of 2018. Hmm? Favorite book you read and or listened to in 2018. Um, I really enjoyed Hannah Fry's book. Hello World, it's all about algorithms and how um, they're influencing all aspects of life, not just um, medicine or the law or the creative world, mm-hmm. um, but how they're there for good, how they're there for bad, um, and how we find the balance between um, machines that can do tasks better than humans and where the balance lies, um, because this is going to be a huge challenge for all of us. And it was, it was just, that was a great... Audible read um, that and factfulness by Hans Rosling, which, uh, which seems like a big one. Is this? Oh, I mean, it's tragic that that that, that he died um, really relatively young, still. But his his ability to communicate principles, to provide an optimistic and upbeat message, and his um, his his um, techniques for visualizing data. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal, and that—that that to me is a sort of creative um, genius um, who was really m- miles ahead of his time. I haven't seen anyone come close to that. Well,
0: I'm going to have to read that. Like you yeah. know, the first one says this is a brilliant book to read, and uh, I'll put it on my list twenty nineteen. Then I mean, the list is huge, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add it on it whenever I got time. Um, Charlie, Eric, thank you very much. Pleasure, real for, pleasure for being on the podcast
1: and. Tell people where they can find you. So yes. So best place to find me: Twitter at Charlie underscore Lee's L W S. At um, Predict P R E D I C C T. Um, we the predict website is phenomenal. Eric, you designed it. Brilliant job. <laughs> www.predict.co.uk. Yes. Um, and Instagram at Charlie Lee's. Yes. All one word. If
0: you're a runner. I highly suggest Running. following Charlie's on Instagram because yeah. that's.
1: Uh, I also th- there's also a professional Instagram page at Doctor Charlie Lee's that uh, I hover between. Um, um, Doctor
0: Doctor spell D R D R Charlie yeah. Lee's.
1: and that that's been dormant for a little while, but I'm about to unleash a torrent of content onto that as well. Perfect.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me. It was Thanks, a pleasure. Eric. Pleasure. Um, so many good things, and uh, thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you, everybody, for sticking around till the end of the podcast. I will be around in a couple of weeks, as usual. Have a great day. Bye.